Uh, when do your words get you into trouble? I use words as a big part of my job. Mostly I think I'm pretty good with words. Uh, I can explain things clearly. I can organise ideas logically. I can argue a position persuasively. Uh, but words can also get me into trouble when I use words to manipulate people, to convince them to do what I want. Uh, or when I speak before I think, when I tease and criticise people rather than encourage and compliment them. Or when I'm tired or frustrated or bad-tempered and my words damage rather than build up people. Our words are powerful. Words are powerful to heal and unite, but also powerful to hurt and divide. Today's chapters in Judges about Jephthah are all about words. Last week we saw that Gideon was a man of action. Well, this week Jephthah is a man of words. And while his words do great good, they also do great damage. And so the story of Jephthah is a warning for us to remind us about the power of words so that we might consider how we speak. Uh, well, the theme of words, it begins even before we're introduced to Jephthah, back in chapter 10, verse 6. Uh, this section is about how words manipulate. How words manipulate. Uh, the, the, the story begins the same way we're familiar with. The Israelites have gone astray again. They're following other gods, and God is angry again. He hands them over to their enemies who oppressed them for 18 years. Verse 10 of chapter 10, the people cry out to God, we've sinned against you. God replies, verse 11, when your enemies oppressed you before, I saved you. But you turned away and served other gods, cry out to them, let them save you. Now listen to what the people say. I think the first example of foolish words. Verse 15 of chapter 10, we have sinned, do with us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. Now that's just asking for it, isn't it? Uh, sure, we deserve judgment. Do what you have to do. Just save us from this crisis. Uh, apart from anything else, it's trying to manipulate God, uh, to make a deal with God, to make him do what they want. Now even though they don't deserve it, even though they've spoken foolishly, God does rescue them. Verse 16 says he could bear their misery no longer. Isn't that a great sentence? It doesn't even say Israel repented and so God forgave them. Just that he couldn't bear to see them suffer. Now that's no different uh, when God saves us. He doesn't save us because we're really sorry. We're more sorry than someone else. He doesn't save us because our faith is particularly strong. The certainty of our salvation is not based on our character, but God's character. It is all of grace and nothing of our works. Uh, the Bible commentator Dale Ralph Davis says about this verse, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of God's compassion. And that should give you hope. Well, that's the background. 
Uh, Then, verse 17, the story begins. The specifics of the story begin. It begins in the region of Gilead. Uh, It's in the northeast of Israel, sort of up in that corner. It's right in the path of the neighbouring Ammonites, who are sort of off to the northeast. Uh, The leaders of Gilead, they look around for a commander to lead their army. Verse 18 of chapter 10. Uh, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be head over all those living in Gilead. So they're looking for a suitable leader. We're introduced to him at the start of chapter 11, Jephthah. He's from Gilead. He's a mighty warrior, we're told. His father is also called Gilead, named after the original father of their clan. Everything's good so far. The problem, however, is with Jephthah's mother, who was a prostitute. Uh, It means he grew up as an outcast. His half-brothers, the sons of Gilead's wife, They reject him and they run him out of town. You'll never get the inheritance, so just disappear. Make life easier for everyone. I think this is a defining moment for Jephthah. He flees to the land of Tob, verse 3, and he gathers a gang around him. Our version says adventurers. It's too polite a description. It's literally empty men, worthless No redeeming features. Now, some people in that situation may just try to get on with their life, uh, create something new, but not Jephthah. It seems like this rejection uh, shapes him, makes him ambitious. He's got something to prove. He's hungry for power and recognition that he's been denied. Perhaps he even wants to get even. And he'll do anything and sacrifice anything to get it. Jump forward sometime later, back to when chapter 10 finished. The Ammonites are invading and the Gilead elders come back to Jephthah and they beg. Um, We know we told you to leave, uh, but just take that back. Now we need you. Uh, Verse 6, come and be our commander. Notice they're doing exactly what Israel has done with God back in chapter 10. They reject him. And then they come crawling back to him and try and manipulate him with their words. Now it's a tempting offer for Jephthah, offering him the very thing that he's hungry for, for acceptance and influence. Jephthah points out their hypocrisy, verse 7. Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? God does exactly the same thing. He points out Israel's hypocrisy, They've followed other gods, then come crawling back to him. Back in chapter 10, verse 14, uh, God said to Israel, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen, let them save you. But the leaders are desperate for a leader, verse 8 of chapter 11. Nevertheless, that might be true, but we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our, uh, you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. The offer's just getting better. They're, they're doing a bit of negotiating. Uh, not just commander of the army, but leader of the, of the uh, clan. Jephthah realises he's in the dominant negotiating position. This is his chance to prove all those people wrong. He makes sure he gets a firm promise from the elders, verse 10, using his words to confirm the offer. Then verse 11 says he heads back to Gilead and repeats all his words before the Lord. 
which probably means something like a public declaration to do the job. Perhaps he's swearing on the Lord. Then verse 12, he uses more words to try to convince the Ammonite king not to go to war. Maybe he can get out of uh, fighting at all. The Ammonite king says, verse 13, I'm attacking because uh, Israel took away Ammonite land. Uh, Then from verses 14 to 27, uh, Nora did a fantastic job reading that long section of names and places. Uh, 14 to 27, we get this history where Jephthah's point is to prove that the land that's uh, under dispute was never Ammonite land at all. Uh, He's using his words to manipulate the king. We're introduced to him as a mighty warrior, but what's interesting is we see a lot more of his skill with words than we do of his skill with a sword. But all those words do no good. Verse 28, we read, The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Now, it's with this background of using words to manipulate uh, that we come to Jephthah's greatest mistake. Not trying to manipulate people, but trying to manipulate God. And we see how words can destroy. Words can destroy. Verse 29, we're told the spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah. He's God's chosen deliverer. He's making progress. He's advancing against the Ammonites. We know what's coming. We know he's going to win. If God's spirit's with him, then it's assured. But for some reason in verse 30, he offers God a deal. Perhaps he gets scared, doubts God's power, uh, doubts God's promise. Well, I wonder if it's not because his motives get in the way. I wonder if he wants to win the battle for his own goals rather than for God's glory or to deliver God's people. I wonder if it's his personal agenda to gain success and power means he's willing to risk everything. And he's going to use his words to do it. It's worked so far, so why not now? Verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Tragedy is, God's going to give the Ammonites into his hands anyway. We know the Spirit of the Lord's with him. There's no need for a deal. The tragedy is, in his hunger to achieve power and influence, he clings to the wrong things and ends up losing the right things. He trades his family for a position. He switches the the price tags on what's valuable and what's not. And how many men have done something similar? in their lives and careers. Well, the writer passes quickly over the battle and the victory as if it's a minor matter, which which in a sense it is because God is fighting for them. Uh, Jephthah wins. And it jumps to the tragic ending after the battle and the action slows down and the awful facts are painstakingly described in intricate detail. So just let this verse weigh on you, verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. 
Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Any of you fathers out there, you all know what it's like when you've been away at a conference, away for work or something, and you can't wait to see your kids and they can't wait to see you. This scene is enough to break your heart, isn't it? A daughter comes racing out of the house full of innocent joy and bubbly enthusiasm, wanting to share the good times with her dad. Our thoughts go to the daughter, but the only one Jephthah can think about is himself. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. It literally says, I've opened my mouth to the Lord. There's your problem. (laughs) He's opened his mouth. The moment he opened his mouth was when the problem started. And the tragedy and the loss is made worse by the gracious, obedient, faithful response of the daughter. Verse 36, my father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Uh, You've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me just as you've promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies. And that's what happens. Uh, After a period of mourning with her friends, Jephthah does the terrible deed. He sacrifices his daughter to God. The deed he promised because he opened his big mouth one time too often. And I think even the fact that he goes through with his promise says something about Jephthah, how his words are so important to him that nothing else will get in the way. Even breaking a law of God, he won't let that stop him and the power of his words. Deuteronomy 12.31, the Lord hates when people sacrifice their sons and daughters to their gods. And he says, you must not do it. Words destroy, but that's not all. Words can divide. That's the lesson of chapter 12. The battle's over, and the men of Ephraim come calling again. They're upset they missed out on the spoils of winning the battle against the Ammonites. There's pride behind their complaint, perhaps greed. They should have been asked, they should have been included. They've missed out. Now, they actually did the same thing with Gideon back in chapter 8. Do you remember? Back then, Gideon calmed things, oh, sorry, calmed things down by, by flattering them. But not Jephthah. He defends his actions. I did ask for your help, but you ignored me. So we went on our own, and the Lord gave me the victory. Now why have you come up today to fight me? He doesn't have Gideon's patience or wisdom or diplomatic skills. Uh, I wonder if it's not the the, the proud insults that the Ephraimites are directing at Gideon and uh, the other Gileadites. Verse 4, we're told, you Gileadites are renegades. You're deserters. You know, you're not loyal. Maybe that's the uh, sanitised version of what they called them. It's the sort of insult, I think, that uh, um, Jephthah grew up with. So he calls together his, his, uh, his, his men and they fight the Ephraimites and they beat them, all because of these words that divide. When the Ephraimites try to sneak home back across the Jordan River, the Gileadites use a password to divide uh, them even further. Say Shibboleth, 
they say to anyone who wants to cross the river. If they said it the right way, Shibboleth, they were allowed to pass. But if they said Sibboleth, they were killed because that gave away. They were from the region of Ephraim. And 42,000 were killed. Fellow Israelites, it's a tragic ending that's even worse than Jephthah's daughter. All, again, because of words. The pride and the, the misplaced desire behind those words. Words manipulate, words destroy, words divide. So what can we learn from Jephthah? Well, the most obvious lesson, isn't it, is to be careful with your words. Be careful what you say. Listen lots, talk less. There's a good reason God gave us two ears and one mouth. Talking can do great and useful things. Words can praise God, words can pray, words can tell people about Jesus, they can encourage and teach and build people up. But foolish and hasty words can do great damage. It's so easy to hurt with your tongue, isn't it? James 3 puts it like this. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Words are powerful, aren't they? Uh, Ephesians has some, some good advice about how we speak to one another, the words that we use. So on the one hand, it, it, it talks positively about uh, words being used to do powerful good. Chapter 5, verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. See the words there? Words that praise God, words that encourage one another. But a few verses earlier in chapter 5, it says this about words that we use. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Get rid of those words which can damage. So is that it? Is that the, the moral, the, the, the application of the sermon? Is it as easy as just telling you to be careful what you say? To say nice things to each other and don't say bad things? Is that it? Well, that's simplistic. It's simplistic and secondly, it won't work. At least not long term. You may be able to change what comes out of your mouth in the short term. But the problem is deeper than just the words that come out of your mouth. Did you notice verse 5? People who regularly use words that are obscene, foolish or coarse are idolaters. 
their hearts are set on things that are immoral or impure. You see, the words that come out of our mouth are just the symptom. The cause is the heart that produces those words. Jesus says it particularly clearly in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees have accused Jesus of being in in, uh, legion with uh, the devil. Uh, And Jesus responds, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus' point is that words are a reflection of your heart. That's why we'll be judged by our words. Not because we say dumb things, but because our heart Reflect it is reflected in what we say. Think about it. Think about the times when your words have hurt, when you've said the dumb thing or the, or, or the thing you wished you could unsay. Often, the times we say that wrong thing, there's something underneath it that's caused us to say those words. Perhaps it's pride. You've been offended and you retaliate. Or maybe impatience, that you're not being listened to and and you want to stand up for yourself. Or maybe things are not working out the way you'd planned, a meeting's not unfolding the way you'd hoped, and and, and so you let them know about it. You can't control what's happening and and you want to re-establish control. Or else someone's got something that you really want and, and you're going to manipulate with your words to get it. Do you see how the heart is producing those words? All of those things come out of the heart. They're idols. Simply to control your tongue without changing your heart that produces those words, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a skin cancer. The real problem is much deeper than what's on the surface. It's much deeper than the words. I actually wonder if we don't get a hint of that with Jephthah. He's foolish with his words, he manipulates, but that just reflects his heart. At the risk of doing a little psychoanalysis, it seems like Jephthah's early rejection by his half-brothers caused him to long for that thing he'd missed out on, to long for acceptance and influence. Those were his idols. And it caused him to do anything and to say anything and to give up anything to achieve those things. His heart was set on the wrong things and his words just betrayed his heart. And so we need to set our hearts on better things than these. We need to set our heart on better things than pleasure or influence or comfort or control. We need to make much of God. We need to seek first God's kingdom. Ask God to change your heart. 
Ask God to make you long for him. Ask God that he may become big in your eyes. Ask God for Jesus to be seen by you as as so pure and good and attractive that the idols of this world fade and no longer attract you. As God begins to answer that prayer, then our words will begin to reflect our hearts. And so our words will speak much of Jesus. And our words will encourage each other and point each other to Jesus. And increasingly our words will be like these in Ephesians 5. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might do a work in our hearts. Uh, Each of us is swayed away in our devotion to you, no matter how long we've been a Christian, by the things of this world, by the attractive... uh, things of of power or pleasure or influence. Uh, We pray that you would grow in us a desire to know you and your kingdom more and more so the things of this world would prove strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And then when you begin to change our hearts, we pray that you might get to work on our words Uh, so that we might build one another up and bring praise to you. Amen.